Well, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Mary Stanford. Um, some, of, some of you who are freshmen might have me for grammar workshop, but maybe more of you have my husband, Trey Stanford, for English. Um, but I have been invited tonight to speak about the theology of the body. What I want to stress at the very beginning is that the theology of the body, while pertaining in so many ways to questions about marriage and human sexuality, is first and foremost a way of understanding the human person. And it has a myriad of practical applications, uh, some of which I'm going to hopefully address in a third talk. Um, so, you know, things like, well, social communications technology and uh, modesty, dating. Um, I'm actually going to give a paper next week on the theology of the body and the environment. So there's a lot of ways in which this teaching can be applied because it has to do with the nature of the human person. Um, as one of the central themes of his pontificate, Pope St. John Paul II spoke and wrote quite frequently on the importance of understanding the unique nature of the human person, who possesses dimensions that are both physical and spiritual. And let's face it, as bodily beings, we are a bit of a mystery to ourselves at times. Are our bodies simply something we have, or are they something we are? Human beings exist in a dimension where matter and spirit intersect. We're not merely animals, but we're not angels. We're something different and unique. During the course of several years' worth of Wednesday audiences, which the Pope gave throughout the very late 70s and up to the mid-80s, John Paul II examined precisely this question of who we are as embodied human persons, and specifically how we come to know ourselves and others. And it's these weekly talks that have been compiled together and are what we have come to know as the theology of the body. One term that appears again and again in Pope John Paul's work is the term anthropology. Right, which, as I'm sure you know, being at Christendom, um, means the study of man, the study of man in general. So you could say it's the study of the person. Understanding just who a person is is a critical issue for us. As St. John Paul noted in one of his encyclicals, The Gospel of Life, modern man has been undergoing a kind of identity crisis for some time now. The problem, he says, and I'm just going to read a small quote from Evangelium Vitae, that's Gospel of Life, <coughs> 22, man is no longer able to see himself as mysteriously different from other earthly creatures. Enclosed in the narrow horizon of his physical nature, he is somehow reduced to being a thing and no longer grasps the transcendent character of his existence as man. So modern culture has accepted the notion that the human person is, at heart, nothing more than a thing, a sort of elaborate, sophisticated, physical object. And the culture as a whole has proposed that we treat the human person accordingly. After all, we are the culture of convenience and efficiency. Pope Francis has referred to ours as a throwaway culture. Think about how we treat a physical object. If something isn't functioning as we would like, we toss it out and get a new one. 
Or perhaps we just remove what's broken and fix it piecemeal. If we run out of what we want, we get ourselves a refill. If we want to organize our things, we gather them up and put them close beside one another in a drawer or in a closet. And don't forget, if we want to hang on to our things, if we want to guard against losing our stuff, we make sure never ever to give it away. I'm sure you can probably see where I'm going with this. When marriages between people fail, our culture's response is to split up and remarry. Replace the difficult spouse with another model. On that same note, we rush to abort children who are seen as defective or broken with birth defects, or simply because they're undesired. Today, we deal with the inconvenience of a woman's fertility with contraception or sterilization, and an older term for you know, having sterilizing surgery was uh, getting fixed. We rush to fix depressed people with prescription drugs, often without recourse to other possibilities. Now, these drugs often can help people, but in a recent Johns Hopkins study, 60% of adults treated for clinical depression didn't actually meet the criteria for having had it, and yet they were treated with the drugs anyway. Extreme makeovers nip and tuck bodies to seeming perfection. Another recent study revealed that despite our current economic recession and widespread unemployment, elective plastic surgeries are at an all-time high. A common cultural cure for a feeling of emptiness is to fill up our longings by buying stuff. There used to be a mini mall on every corner, but now you don't even have to leave your living room or get out of your PJs because you can just order stuff on your computer. To overcome loneliness, our modern response is internet matchups and casual hookups. Because true intimacy is eluding so many people, they're often willing to settle for that fleeting feeling of closeness that comes from such encounters. And lastly, there is the now prevalent trend of so-called cohabitation. What lies beneath cohabitation? Well, it's the mortal fear that a person will lose himself if he makes a commitment. This person thinks if you give an object away, you lose it. If you want to be your own person, if you value your freedom, for heaven's sake, hold back. Don't entrust yourself to another. It's too risky. Don't get married. You will lose your identity. A simple observation of our dysfunctional culture, however, soon reveals that this understanding of the human person is incomplete at best. To borrow a term from John Paul II, it is shown to be flawed by our lived experience. When the tried and true remedies for dealing with an object are applied to a human person, there results the profoundest of dissatisfactions. With all of our material prosperity, there is more unfulfilled loneliness and emptiness than ever before. Even back in the 80s, Mother Teresa referred to our own nation as having a worse kind of poverty than third world nations. This object anthropology cannot support the weight of human longings. So it's at this point where John Paul II takes us, directs our attention to the book of Genesis. By taking us back to a moment at the very dawn of history, before original sin forever changed the world, 
John Paul is reminding us that there was an originality before sin, a state of innocence, of justice, which matters to us. It must inform our understanding of the human person and what will make him happy. For John Paul, the creation accounts in Genesis constitute what he calls a biblical anthropology. And he describes the first man, Adam, as being on a quest for self-knowledge. Adam is trying to answer that question, that perennial question, who am I? And so tonight, I want to lay out to describe four key elements of what Adam discovers in this, you know, very brief, it's the second creation account, though, accented uh, by the first, um, so that um, we might be better equipped to respond to our culture's grave miscalculation of the human person. And so these key elements that I'm going to be hitting on are, put them on the board, knowledge, communication, gift, and symbol. So starting with knowledge, a key distinction that John Paul makes is that Adam comes to know who he is in two ways. The first way comes through his experience of giving names to the animals. When God presents Adam with the animals, recall that Adam doesn't just sort of walk over and strike up a conversation with them. Okay, that's, that's not happening. Rather, he observes them, obviously notes their distinctive features, and names them accordingly. But what he really learns in the process is something about himself. Adam discovers that he is not them. Now, I know that's not grammatically correct because I'm doing grammar right now. He is not they, but it sounds better to say he is not them. He is radically different from them and superior to them. In fact, he discovers he's quite alone because none of the animals are truly fit to be his companion. He abides in an intimacy with his creator of which no one else around him is remotely capable because it is a spiritual connection, a dimension that none of the animals shares with him. For a deeper knowledge of himself, Adam needs to wait. Okay, so in a sense, he learns what he is not in his encounter with the animals. But for a deeper knowledge about himself, Adam must wait until the woman is presented to him by God. Now, upon seeing her, we all remember his famous exclamation, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. For the first time in creation, we witness an expression of joy. But what John Paul points out to us is that at this moment of seeing the woman, a perfect woman, right, for the first time, it's not that Adam is so dazzled by the beauty of her sexual difference. We're not to paraphrase him saying, wow, look at you. No, in recognizing their common humanity, it's almost as if in that moment Adam says, wow, look at me, that's what I am. And his self-knowledge is perfected through her and through that encounter. It is precisely in physically encountering another, notably different from, yet in a more profound way like himself, that Adam more fully knows himself. In searching for an affirmation of who he is, he sees her and says, that's for me, that's what I am. The deepest human happiness and the fullest kind of knowledge come through community. And while in the case of Adam and Eve, 
It is their physical sexual difference which enables them to unite so intimately. We must always bear in mind that it is their sameness and humanity in their spiritual powers of intelligence, freedom, and that capacity for intimacy with God which actually makes their union what it is. Man's original knowledge of himself came about through loving physical encounter with another like himself. So it's a bit of a paradox then that a person can only know himself by transcending, by going out beyond himself. One might think of the mythological Narcissus who stared obsessively at his own reflection and was unfulfilled. Somehow we are not enough to satisfy our own longings. I think it's truly fascinating how in knowing and in encountering another, you know yourself more fully. I often ask my students who have come back from their Rome semester how much better they came to know one another after traveling together. Has anybody here been to the Rome semester? Okay, so my guess is when you're on an intense trip and you're thrown together for long periods of time in extreme conditions, you really get to know one another. Okay, some people probably haven't spoken to each other since that day. <laughs> uh, some of us tonight, a few of us, have been on an intense trip, a marriage that has lasted a lot longer than one semester. And while I am fairly certain that after years and living with such close contact, we could tell tales about the virtues and faults of our spouses, what I'd like you to consider is what you come to learn about yourself in those encounters. In my own experience, when I reflect upon being married for 15 years, I find that particularly my flaws come into relief, okay? Because you're in that daily encounter, and yes, you see the other person's flaws and, and gifts, but you do definitely become aware of your shortcomings, things that you never imagined you were, you were bad at, or, <laughs> you know, your faults come into relief, okay? And so, and how do we find this out? Well, through our spouse's responses and reactions to our behavior. And sometimes it's not pretty. And all of us experience this to some degree when we grow up in a family or now living with roommates. But the fact remains, unless we have such close encounters, we can't grow. You stagnate. Or worse, your self-image is skewed because there's no one around to respond to you, to reflect off. You know, sometimes... Uh, they find that with children who are born hearing impaired, um, even if they're able to correct the hearing, oftentimes you can tell when someone experienced hearing loss at an early age because their speech sounds a little bit different, okay? They didn't have the proper feedback that they needed to properly speak, so their speech might be a little skewed. In the same way, your self-image will be skewed if you don't get feedback. There's a reason today so many people are obsessed with their pets. Part of it is loneliness, and that is a real issue. But part of it is that there's a lot of people out there that don't want feedback. How many times have you heard the phrase, my dog gives me unconditional love? <laughs> really? Maybe if they could speak, they'd have a few things to say. Okay. <clears throat> there was an absolutely real USA Today article. It was not written in jest that said one in three women say their dogs listen better than their husbands. <laughs> I thought that was kind of fun. Um, but I'm not just referring to negative feedback, okay, of even more critical importance to the development of the human person is the positive, encouraging feedback of those closest to us. 
that provides an essential affirmation of our identities and helps us to discover who we are. So this simple yet profound moment about knowledge, okay, stands in stark contrast to our modern idea of knowledge, which is very limited in scope. Our culture today reduces what we can know, reduces truth ultimately pretty much to the realm of science and what it can tell us about the physical world. I mean, let's face it, totally insane modern phrases like, that's your truth, this is my truth, they don't hold up well in physics class. Try that. Try saying that to the professor when you get an answer wrong. Okay? <laughs> Knowing something in a scientific way still has real meaning for us as a culture. And I would like to compare it to that knowledge at a distance, like Adam observing the animals. He's not up close talking to them, but he's, he's observing them okay, and learning about them. Something like dissection in biology is another example. To quote Francis Bacon, the father of the scientific method, he says, through great effort, we force nature to give up her secrets. Right? So we step back, we put gloves on, we lay the thing on the table, we slice it up, and that's how we come to know. But is this the model for coming to know a human person? Impossible, right? Can one person ever come to know another through distance and detachment by sheer observation and interrogation? I always thought that would make it interesting for state, probably a last date for that person. It's clear that you can come to know about a person through detached study, but you will never know them that way. I can't help knowing a little bit about the Kardashians when I walk through the checkout lane, okay? But do I presume to know these people? You know, as fallen humans, and we'll talk about this in my final talk, uh, but it seems that we're always looking for shortcuts. The fact is, it is a lot easier to know about a person than to know a person. Just look at our culture. So many of us would vastly deal, would vastly prefer to deal with other people by sort of keeping them at arm's length, keeping them at a distance, communicating through texting and email, Facebook, you name it, because actually getting to know others means we must encounter them for better or for worse. And that takes time, effort, patience, and it is continually fraught with the fear of what this person might ask of us. Okay? So true personal knowledge comes never through detachment, but only through attachment, through encounter, through conversation, ultimately through love. One other thought on this is that in the working world, you know, people use resumes to try to get a job. And one criticism that I hear a lot is that, oh, this resume, I put so much work into it, but it doesn't really matter because it seems like getting hired is just a matter of who you know. And yet, in theory, nepotism aside, okay, is that really so bad? If there were a person at a company who knows you personally, someone who could vouch for your abilities <coughs> and your character, wouldn't their recommendation be a thousand times more valuable to some impressive facts listed on a piece of paper? They don't just know about you, they know you. In our own profession of faith, we don't simply say, credo unum deum. I believe one God, right? We say I believe in God. Now, of course, we do believe what God tells us. But to say I believe in him, it means we are, we're attached to him. We're united to him in a personal relationship, an encounter which goes way beyond what we witness in the material world. And so 
It's essential to recognize that personal knowledge, the knowing of persons, is of a different nature than scientific knowledge or the knowledge of objects. And owing to this distinction, there's going to be a difference in the way in which we communicate that knowledge. What comes to mind when we use the word communication today? Well, for a long time, the only thing that would pop into people's heads was the ubiquitous college communications major. For a while, everyone was majoring in communications. Perhaps it brings to mind the act of distributing or disseminating information, of getting facts out. It's the information age, the age of the Google search. <coughs> what St. John Paul points out is that the word communicate has come a long way from its original meaning. The root of communicate is cum unio, with one or one with. Okay, it has to do with a very particular sphere of reality the personal sphere. Why is this? Because we only communicate with persons. How, how, do, how do I become one with an apple? Well, the only way I can think of is to eat it by actually destroying its identity and making it my own. That's not communicating. I've eradicated its existence. Co communicating has to do with uniting, becoming one, and yet mysteriously preserving the being of each at the same time. When we receive the Holy Eucharist, we appropriately refer to this act as communicating. We are becoming one with our Lord, but our identity is not destroyed. It's actually perfected and enhanced through the relationship. And so communication in the fullest sense of the word is about making one person known to another. It's not first about making facts known, but a person. It's a much fuller, deeper concept. There's two more things to consider here. First, how does such a relationship proceed? Since we've established that a person cannot be known by force or merely by facts, right? And we have to be careful about that with our social network pages, right? Just because you're Facebook friends with somebody we all know, it doesn't mean you're actually friends. Okay, you can't be known by force or merely by facts. It follows that a person, in order to be known, must make himself known through his own initiative, that is to say, freely. What do we call it when someone offers something freely to another? We call it a gift. Persons are designed to communicate, to make themselves known to one another, by way of gift. And frankly, this shouldn't come as a total surprise to us. Persons and gifts both exist at that intersection of the material and spiritual worlds. Both contain dimensions that are visible and invisible. Consider some everyday examples of gift giving. The physical item we refer to as a gift is really only one critical dimension of a gift. The cookies we bring to welcome a neighbor or the engagement ring that a man offers his girlfriend. Those are tokens. They are visible, tangible items that represent something equally real, but invisible. So when I greet my new neighbor, the cookies I bring aren't really the present. In a way, I'm the present. My invisible friendship is being presented through the physical symbol. This idea is further confirmed at those times when a gift that we offer is rejected 
or not received in its fullness. Say my neighbor takes my cookies and sort of tosses them to her dog. You know, she's literally like rejecting the gift in my face. Or, um, and a sort of more subtle note, let's imagine the girlfriend accepts the engagement ring. She says, yes, but immediately runs to the jeweler to have the diamond reset in a grander setting. Okay, so she's accepted really part of the gift, but not the whole gift. Okay, both scenarios should cause us to cringe because when a gift is rejected or when it is not accepted in its wholeness, in its totality, it is spoiled. Okay, and the giver is wounded. If my gift were merely physical, I wouldn't feel a thing when it's tossed into the trash. And yet, mysteriously, when this physical item is tossed into the trash or only partially accepted, I feel it very deeply. And so we see that the only proper way to receive a gift is just that, to receive it, to accept it in the fullness in which it is offered. And so in the realm of personal communication, we find a similar dynamic. When in coming to know one another, each person essentially offers himself or herself freely and willingly in the hopes of being accepted gratefully and completely. But as I mentioned a moment ago, every gift involves some sort of token, some physical symbol of that invisible reality. There must exist something physical which displays, which presents me in all my invisible truth to someone else. What is my symbol? What physical reality represents my self-gift most perfectly and completely? My body. Okay, John Paul called the human body the sign and the place of relations with others. It is, in fact, the symbol of the person. Symbols are always a reminder of something. They always bring an invisible reality to one's mind. But a perfect symbol doesn't merely remind, but makes something truly present. That's what our bodies do. Our bodies are a perfect symbol. My body doesn't make me present in some fashion. You know, like if I called you on the phone, or wrote you a letter, or lived on in your memory, or gave you a photo, right? That makes me present to some degree, in some fashion, okay? But my body is what makes me to be fully and totally here. I can't be more here than I am now in the flesh. This is always what the sacraments do. The sacred host, because it looks and tastes like bread physically, is meant to remind us that Christ is food for our souls. But it also truly makes him present. The water at baptism reminds us of Christ's cleansing of our souls. It reminds us of that mystical dying and rising, right? But it also effects, it brings about that very invisible cleansing of our souls. This is why our bodies, too, can be called sacramental, with a small s, because they make present a real spiritual reality. And right from the beginning, it was the body that enabled man and woman to communicate with each other. Man came to know himself and others through the body, at first through its difference, right from the animals. Adam didn't have you know, a deep philosophical discourse about his difference from the animals. All he had to do was to see that their bodies were so different from his own that clearly, nope, that is not the body that represents a human person. Okay, And then later, that identification by seeing his body's likeness, though not exact replica, his body's likeness to the woman's made him realize 
that sameness. He was able to identify with her. When John Paul reflects on that original state of personal communication in Genesis, he says that the, well, he, when, he, when he reflects upon those words that tell us that the first man and woman gazed upon each other naked and were not ashamed. John Paul explains this experience to us as an example of perfect communication between the two. They experienced peace because they each offered themselves completely and received one another completely. A perfect exchange of gift. They held nothing back, and their nakedness without shame indicates a full and total acceptance of the other. It is if, in that moment of nakedness without shame, Adam didn't see Eve's body. He just saw Eve, and vice versa. Their bodies made them present perfectly, and they didn't sense any sort of rupture between body and spirit. It was the person. John Paul insists that it is precisely in this mutual acceptance of one another that Adam and Eve truly affirm one another's identities. And this is a fundamental principle that I'll keep going back to in the theology of the body. When a person is welcomed, when a person is received, accepted by another in his fullness as a gift, only then does that person begin to understand, to know himself to be a gift. Only then, in that moment of encounter, does that person begin to grasp the fullness of who he is. One of my favorite um, writers is this renowned retreat master, Father Jacques Philippe. And in his book, Interior Freedom, I was just reading this last night, he totally echoed this principle. He says, humans urgently need the mediation of another's eyes to love ourselves and to accept ourselves. We need to be looked upon by someone who says, as God did through the prophet Isaiah, you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. Okay, John Paul talks a lot about you know, man's call to live and to give of himself in terms of fulfillment, but he actually spends a lot more time in the theology of the body talking about the profound effect of being received by another. Whenever there is a giving, that's not the end of the gift. For a gift to be a success, there needs to be a giving and a receiving. And the effect of the human person when they are received by another is what makes the difference. And this is not just a sexual thing. This is the pattern of our existence from the beginning. New persons do not come from a cabbage patch or a medical lab. From the first moment of our existence, God designed it so that each of us is surrounded by a family, an intimate, embodied community of persons. And our self-image, our understanding of who we are, is meant to develop and flourish in this context of a very concrete and visible love. It is precisely when we as persons are not welcomed and treated as gifts that we can become crippled in our self-understanding and wounded in our identities. So next week, I'm going to, or next week, next talk, it hasn't been scheduled, I hope. Mr. Vanderbody schedules it with me soon. I have other pressing issues um, at hand. Um, but we're going to talk about the effect of original sin specifically on these four areas. But I'm also going to emphasize the fact that it's not something that um, affected man and woman identically. Okay, It certainly affected them both profoundly, but it did not affect them in identical ways because men and women are not replicas of one another. Okay, and so I'm going to do a special emphasis on the different ways in which original sin affected this dynamic um, 
in both genders. Okay, and then hopefully the third talk will be some practical applications. The, the usual one I give is contraception, but I'd like to give some things that are a little more um, general and pressing in everyday college lives here at Christendom. So just to wrap up the four points, okay, the human, the human person is a being who comes to know himself, who comes into the fullness, he comes to knowledge, the fullness of knowledge about himself through community, through an embodied encounter with another human person, right, starting with mom and dad. Furthermore, due to his nature, his specific nature as an intelligent and free being, he can only enter into community through an act of gift. His body, because it is physical, serves as a perfect symbol of this self-gift, okay, because it alone is capable of making present his invisible dimension, okay? So that's the body, the symbol. <coughs> and finally, when a person is welcomed, when they are accepted, received by another um, in this fullness as a gift, only then does that person begin to understand himself to be a gift and grasp the fullness of who he is as a human person. Okay, so that's sort of the, the wrap-up. Um, I will touch on all the bad stuff that happened next, but this is just sort of the foundational principles. So I don't know if anybody has questions or comments. We could, we could do that. I don't know how much time you guys have. <laughs> I guess it was just self-evident. No, Claire. Um, is there, I know that you said you're going to get to practical applications in the third week, but yes. um, in the idea of gifts, I know we talked about cookies and engagements, but um, yes. is there any way, I have, yeah, is there any little practical things that even in our day-to-day life that I mean, it doesn't have to be directly college, it could be any kind of team thing, you know? Yeah. You know, one just just one that just pops into my head is just again, this is every day, this isn't tackling <coughs> huge issues, but in doing a lot of research about gift, it made me realize that we are really not like a gift culture. Our culture bristles at the idea of gift because what we realize is that in that moment when a gift, a physical gift, transfers from one person to another, it's not simply a physical act, right? The gift transfers, but you two are no longer separate. This transfer of gift has created a relationship, a spiritual reality, an invisible reality is there now, okay? And most people experience this as what? Oh dear, I'm obliged, right? And the funny thing is, the word obligation, ligare, means to tie. In some sense, that gift does link you. It does tie you together. Right? But most people see this as death, right? Oh no, I owe this person, right? Now I'm obliged to this person. I'm indebted. And our culture sees any kind of relationship of sort of debt and being linked as, as a negative. Okay? So often, if someone gives you something, what is the immediate response that the other person does? Well, I mean, either they reject it or, or they give you a return gift. But is the return gift there to enhance the relationship or to sort of even the score? You know, how many times in our culture are gifts given to sort of even the score? And a professor here told me a funny story. I won't rat him out in case he's embarrassed, but he mentioned that growing up, when his family would go uh, to their relatives for Christmas, they would have extra wrapped gifts in the trunk just in case when they went inside and the gift exchange happened, they felt that it wasn't even, right? So we got to make sure, you know, and so it's like, 
oh, I mean, that's, there's something sweet about that, but it's also, you know, it's kind of scary. It shows that we're not getting gift, okay? And so, but, but one thing that is important, though, is a gift does have to be received, right? But the proper response to a gift is not a return gift. It's gratitude, right? If you don't receive it gratefully, it's, it wounds the giver. The gift is sort of a failure, okay? But if the gift is received with gratitude, that's a successful gift. But gratitude must, must, must be expressed. And we are the culture that doesn't know how to write thank you notes anymore. You know, a thank you note. You don't owe somebody. A gift is freely given. You don't deserve it. You didn't expect it. You don't have to give a gift back. <coughs> but you do have to acknowledge the love that motivated the gift. And so a small takeaway point is that it has affected my understanding of I don't have to feel embarrassed when I see somebody that did something for me and I haven't like returned the favor yet. When you do something nice for someone and they constantly like, they like you for it, right? Doesn't that feel good? When you give a gift to someone freely, you want to make them feel good and it feels good to give the gift. And so when we thank them for it, even more than once, that feels good. You are, in a sense, you're living in debt to another. But that's not... We think of debt as a negative thing, right? Living in another's debt. But phrases like, you know, we talk about obligation. Phrases like, much obliged, right? That's the same root, but it doesn't have the same connotation. It says, I'm grateful. And you can live in debt to another, but you have to acknowledge what they did. And so I try to write more thank you notes and try to not feel like every time someone does good, something good for me that I have to immediately return the favor or or else, you know? So, anyway, one reflection. Okay. Well, if more questions pop in, we can talk about it again. I don't know when the next talk is. Um, I wasn't told. <laughs> is that a question? Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so your last point about how when a person's received, they begin to better understand themselves as a gift. Yes. I'm wondering if maybe you could just elaborate a little bit on what that actually Right. Well, again, because it starts in the family, right? the moment that we are literally, we're born into it, right? And we, I mean, they receive us. They know they didn't, they're not, they didn't create our being, actually. I mean, they participated in it, but they, they receive us, right? And when you are loved and treated as a gift, right, you come to know yourself as a gift. But we see, of course, in our culture that so many, you know, whether they're abused or whether it's an absent parent, right? If that person that, it, it, who's, you were born into that relationship, right? And if that person is absent or abusive, you're automatically not receiving that affirmation. And so part of your self-image is going to develop in that context and not fully understand the gift that you are. And then, of course, that will carry on into other relationships, right? The relationships that we enter into as we grow up and are free, right? If you get into a healthy friendship with someone, where there is gratitude and kindness on both sides and receptivity, that, again, affirms who you are. But if you continually get into relationships, either with the opposite sex or the same, where you are being used in some way, right, or only not appreciated, again, with the gift, remember, it's not just being rejected. It's if your gift is not received in its fullness, right? If you sense someone's just being friends with you because you drive them around campus because you have a car and they don't, but they don't really talk to you at lunch, right? You sense that they like you for part of what you have to offer, but not the whole package. 
that hurts, that feels like you're being used. Obviously, casual sex, the same way. Okay, so that in the relationships that we then go on to freely enter into, if a proper gift dynamic is not sustained, you are not going to be affirmed. You're going to be wounded, and it's possible that you won't appreciate the fullness of what you are because it's not being acknowledged. Right? You need that mediation. You need someone else saying, you're wonderful, you're good. And if you're never getting that, you start to believe it about yourself. And I've even seen this um, in, in our culture. The whole idea of dependence is seen as like slavery. And so, of course, if people find out today that they're expecting a child that may have disabilities, there's this huge temptation to, to abort because, oh my gosh, they're always going to be dependent. They're always going to be dependent. Well, unfortunately, you do that long enough with a disabled person or an elderly person, they start to believe it about themselves. Right? And then you have these people, oh, I'm going to be such a burden. Oh, I'm going to be such a burden. And then they start to think of themselves as a burden and, you know, request the assisted suicide or whatever. And so, um, and I've even seen it in cases of disability where, you know, for a long time, kids who were disabled sort of as a reaction to putting everybody in you know, institutions was, you can do anything, you can be anything, you can be mainstreamed, you can do everything. But unfortunately, not everybody can, right? And so then when they can't, then they feel totally and utterly lost. So the response that we receive from others from the beginning on throughout our lives does affect the way in which we, we view ourselves. Well, thanks, guys. <laughs>